Did you know VIP season ticket subscribers have access to this workshop and hundreds more in streaming video, MP3 download, audio CD, executive white paper summary, and podcast formats? Visit vip.dealersedge.com for more information. Welcome to this Dealer's Edge webinar featuring Brooks samples with a workshop on how to identify and stop internal theft. But this time we'll put a twist on it. We'll be examining the subject not the way your external independent auditors might look at it, but we want to look at it today from the dealership controller's perspective. Brooks samples is president of, Brook of Profit Blueprints, LLC, where she analyzes dealers' financial statements compared to key benchmarks. I'm Mike Bowers, Executive Editor of Dealer's Edge. If you read the weekly Dealer's Edge headlines, you will know that we often highlight instances of crime against dealerships frequently perpetrated by a dealership employee. Now, these stories make the news because of the amounts of money involved are large, hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars in some cases. We also get the story because it's wound up in court, and the newspapers have found it and also because the thief has usually come up with a new way to overcome the dealership's internal controls. The crimes are also noteworthy because the schemes have gone on for months or even years before anyone detected them. But in every case we report, the theft started small as though the perpetrators were testing the systems to see if anyone noticed what they were doing. We'll also see today that dealerships may have established internal control protocols, but over time, they fall into disuse either because of staff changes or because the controls seem inconvenient for the employees. Regardless, we want to make sure that we don't have the same experience as this dealer did with his parts department. We reported on a case last year on a parts manager and his partner working for a Pittsburgh area Chrysler Jeep store. They got sentenced to seven years of probation after pleading guilty to a scheme where they stole hundreds of thousands of dollars in parts and then resold them on eBay. But it was the way the thing got started that got my attention. A 62-year-old man named William Balzer approached the dealership with an idea in 2005 to buy parts at 10% over the dealer's cost with the intention of reselling the parts on eBay for an additional 12% markup. There was a profit sharing arrangement with the dealership, but most of the profit would go to, the, to Mr. Balzer for selling the parts. Everybody knew about the arrangement and the dealer was okay with it. But a couple of years later, the dealership's parts manager told Mr. Balzer that he thought he could get the parts for him 30 to 40% cheaper. The parts manager got paid $1,000 to $2,000 a week for his assistance. The parts manager had been an employee of the dealership for 27 years. It all fell apart when the office manager in the dealership informed the parts manager that there was a shortage in his inventory. Is there any way he could get those 30 to come up uh, and explain the $35,000 in missing parts? When he couldn't get the parts back, the police were called. The investigation put the total loss around 
In questioning by police, the parts manager confessed that he only turned over some of the money that he got for the parts back to the dealership. He used the rest to buy lottery tickets in hopes that he'd win enough to pay his gambling debts and to pay back the dealership for the theft. Started small, wound up costing $600,000 plus uh, ruined reputations and seven years of probation. Another case in the parts department, eBay was involved yet again. I'll just go quickly through this, but the parts manager started selling radios, ordering extra radios and selling them on, on eBay. Loss was about $140,000. And to try to conceal uh, what she was doing and, and not make it look like there was a, an inordinate number of radios going through the dealership, uh, she used different parts numbers, different part descriptions uh, on her inventory reports to try to hide it, uh, but apparently got caught, $140,000 plus, uh, and is still being held in the county jail awaiting trial. So to give us her take on dealership internal theft like this, we have with us today, again, one of the true experts, Brooke Samples, president of Profit Blueprints. Uh, Brooke, welcome. Uh, as, I, as I've made clear, I guess, we're going to start with the parts department. And what sorts of mischief can people get into, and how could a vigilant controller and other senior managers nip problems like this in the bud? Um, you, you can use that as a marketing tool that, along with making sure you're not refunding parts to the same person over and over again. And Mike, I know that you gave me a quick example, and I'd like for you to share it because it was very interesting that one of your other consultants shared with you about a credit refunds. You told me the other day. Yes. Uh, yeah, we had uh, one of the parts consultants we work with uh, through Dealer's Edge, uh, was he's he sort of discovered something uh, in the midst of his work, it was, it, it was the idea of comparing uh, parts, re, you know, the month's no return report with the uh, month's no sale report. Uh, number one was to indicate if something didn't look quite right, and when it didn't look quite right, very often there was uh, some sort of theft involved. But in the course of, of checking these things, he was looking down the list of wholesale customers for the, the parts department. And he noticed that four or five of them, four or five of these wholesale customers, all had the same mailing address. And in fact, it was a post office box at the local post office. Uh, and uh, so what they suspected was that, was that there were, were fraudulent credits and checks being sent to, these, uh, to the so-called wholesale customers at the post office box. Uh, and so to, uh, to try to catch whoever was doing it, uh, my consultant friend actually went to the post office and sat there for a day to see who came into the post office box to take the checks. And lo and behold, it was the parts manager that he was working with in the dealership. Um, and so they, that was a, a quick way to discover it. But, but it was interesting that uh, two things that they, they looked at uh, to figure out the problem, one was comparing uh, parts no sale with um, parts no sale with uh, with parts. Um, I want to say that it was MN. Uh, I forget the exact term, but it was it was in you know orders versus uh, parts no receipt versus parts no sale. That was it. I'm sorry. Um, and um, to see where the discrepancies were, and then and then track it down from there, and then. But it was a simple thing, and you could do this uh, 
right after the, the program today is just check your list of wholesale customers for anything that looks suspicious like that. That is, you know, various customers or companies uh, that use the same mailing address because uh, it, it was a clear indication at that point that, uh, that something fraudulent had been set up. And as a convenience, they just used the same post office box. Uh, but it was... Uh, yeah, I, I uh, love that example because it just shows how easy this can be taken, people yeah. can be taken advantage of. And we are going to cover in a little bit more in detail how to use Excel in this particular case to watch these things and, and capture, mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of things. So it's a you know, great example of <clears throat> how you would never really notice it until all of a sudden somebody you know, with fresh eyes. As more and more departments, and Mike, you and I have discussed this as when things got really tight, 2008 and 2009, and people cut back on people and people were doubling up on jobs, that a lot of people are still doing the jobs of a couple of people. And they may feel that they are justified in taking home just a little bit extra money because of that. Right, and we even saw, uh, we've seen, uh, I've seen, seen cases now where, um, where, you have, uh, where you're starting to staff up again and you have new employees coming in, but in order to make life a little easier for the new, new people while they're learning, uh, a more experienced person may say, hey, I'll, I'll take the cash to the bank today. And they start taking the cash to the bank every day uh, and, uh, you know, you lose that one, you know, that one little control where perhaps you had, uh, you know, you had segregation of duties. Now one person is, in order to make it easy on the new people, is saying, I'll do that, I'll do that, well, I'll do this other thing too. Um, and, uh, and that's where we see these long-term thefts start to creep up. Uh, people forget that we had segrega segregation of duties and, uh, and one, one employee in the dealership is starting to accumulate a bunch of responsibilities. Uh, and uh, uh, and even when we're staffing up again, the segregation of duties has been lost, and, and then money starts to get lost as well. Now, I wanted to ask you, Brooke, um, I'm not sure everybody in the audience knows this, but before you, you were uh, a consultant, you were the controller of one of the biggest dealerships in the country. Uh, and so I'm, I'm guessing that you learned a lot of these lessons the hard way, uh, by actually seeing them happen uh, in your dealership. Um, you mentioned uh, spot checking, uh, just keeping an eye on things and letting people know that you're keeping an eye on things uh, as a good way to, to, uh, to prevent thefts from either occurring in the first place, if they are occurring, from stopping them very early before they become uh, from big losses. How did you do that? Uh, how did you get people into the habit of, of spot checking uh, and not so much suspecting that people were stealing, but just uh, just in case it was just part of the job, uh, you know, to uh, to check some of the invoices and look at the uh, the materials that were coming in uh, to to make sure everything was on the up and up. Well, one thing you may not know, Mike, I was in the business when I was five years old. So, uh. and I would play cards, crazy apes with my father's friends who were salespeople. I'd come in after class, you know, kindergarten, first grade. And they would try to cheat me at crazy eight. Cheat a five-year-old and a six-year-old. So I, I had an early lesson that, hmm, maybe not everybody is as honest as they should be. But it really comes as far as, you know, for me, training those accounting people and cross-training. And getting people on board as far as your management to be aware of this, it was 
some of this was was easier before we had computers because I mean I had an accounts payable clerk who she also entered the internals and this is before you could actually know all the stuff you had to enter the stuff by hand and she looked at a internal for an Omni this is, tells you how old, long ago that was an Omni that has four cylinders and here is an invoice for an Omni or an internal for eight spark plugs on this Omni so she was like wait a minute this can't be right. So I don't know if it's making it a game, making it of interest to people other to look at their job above and beyond just doing it. Okay, I'll just post all this stuff. But you know, she was very good as far, when it came to this. She goes, "Wait a minute, this is not that account number for this. It didn't make any difference what account number the manager put on the invoice to be charged to. She would make sure it went to the right account." Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it making it. Say, I don't want people to think like they're in some sort of prison there but making it fun to see what people could find i mean the, the billing clerk looking coming to me and saying look the signature on the invoice excuse me on the buyer's order is way different than the signature on the check and different things like that where they would get interested in really looking at the details and not just making you know not just doing this mundane job of of turning paperwork into the office but just seeing what they can learn from it okay and we often say uh, in these types of programs that um that theft is about 10% motivation and 90% opportunity. Uh, so people have motivation, they need money, they're in debt, um, they, they have to find a way to get some extra money, they may be tempted to steal, uh, or they may think that uh, or feel like they're, they're not being paid enough in the dealership and they're actually owed the money uh, and they rationalize the theft that way but they actually go out and commit the theft because they feel they can get away with it. They have the opportunity. And, uh, and so what we're talking about largely is, uh, is restricting the opportunity, cutting the opportunity out. Uh, one case, again, it's not one that would ever make the paper, uh, but it was a dealership I did some work with uh, where we had set up a, uh, an incentive bonus for technicians where they could get extra money for hitting certain production targets. And one particular guy was consistently turning 12 hours a day, 48 hours a week, or I'm sorry, 60 hours a week, uh, and hitting all the top bonuses and making some pretty good money. Uh, but after a couple weeks of that, the warranty administrator of all people said there's no way, there's no way that that guy is turning 12 hours a day in this dealership. He's got to be cheating. So after about three weeks, uh, he decided uh, he was going to go out. He followed the technician out to his car after work one day, and just insisted, show me what's in the trunk. And sure enough, it was the trunk full of parts uh, that had not been installed, uh, had been you know, checked out but not installed. Uh, and that's how he was beating the time every day and making the bonuses and uh, as a side business for himself, had a bunch of parts that he could, he could sell to other people. So it was that type of suspicion uh, in the dealership uh, that, that prevented the theft from getting worse. Um, and it also sent the message to everybody else in the, in the service department that if you're thinking about this, know that somebody's watching, uh, and, uh, and we're not going to just let you get away with it. Hey, Brooke? Yes. Uh, just a, a quick uh, side trip here. Uh-huh. Uh, for the non-accountants in the audience, uh, could you explain what you, when we re- make reference to schedules, uh, what we're talking about? Yes. I am the Chuck Hartley of schedules. <laughs> that means I have. I love schedules, and if you've ever seen, from even if you're not familiar with them, you certainly have probably seen your accounts receivable schedule. 
you know, here's the customers who owe us money. And it, all this information comes from the general ledger, but it's sorted by a particular reference number. So, in, you know, the schedules for receivables are controlled by the customer number. Like that work in process schedule, that would be controlled by the repair order number. And I love schedules because they can be so useful at finding some of these things that might stop, you know, look odd. I, would, I scheduled employee training controlled by the, employee, the tech number and, or the department name also. But the tech number, and all of a sudden you're looking, wow, I'm paying an awful lot of time to, this num to, to Sam over here for training. And because it's on a schedule, it's one thing you know, to look at the detail on a general ledger, but it's not sorted per se. So when you're putting things on a schedule, you have to have a reference number. And you decide what that is. I say on the training, I had the reference number of the text names and numbers so that I could tell at the end of the year how much I paid each tech for their training time. You could, you know, you could do it for vacation time to see at the end of the year because there are so many account numbers and so many entries that go into a general ledger. The schedule just helps you sort it out and makes it easier for you to catch things when you're looking at it. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about schedules at the end because I think that's one of the things that a very useful tool to to make sure that you know you could sit at your desk and probably you know fine tune some finding some fraud just by looking at some of the reports we're going to talk at the end of the the webinar here. And so so for instance, um, in, in one experience I had, we one of the numbers that always seems to be big on a dealer financial statement is called outside services as an mm -hmm. expense. And uh, it's just a, a single line with a big, big dollar number after it. And uh, so we would ask, could you show us the schedule for outside services? And they'd, we'd come back with a list of everybody who had been paid uh, that added up to the amount that was on the financial statement. And as you say, we could go down the list, and you'd, every people could say, I know who that is. Yeah, that's okay. And then you'd say, well, wait a minute. Who's this? Why is Mike Bowers getting $10,000? Um, and, uh, and, and those kinds of things might pop out uh, from, from that type of a schedule uh, and, and raise the question. Right. And the beauty on the schedule is you can do it as far as detail forward. So you could have the detail for all year long. You could do it for bounce forward. So it would just be a, here's what my year-to-day bounce is and here's what. And obviously it depends on the data you want to look at. You know, for like the technician time, I would just have it detail forward to the end of the year and it zeroes out. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing might be a detail of just a balance for it on outside services. You can see how much you paid year to date to Mike Bowers, which was you know ten dollars, and all of a sudden mm -hmm. this month we're paying ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars. But there's a you know that's not, I would I love schedules because they do a lot of the sorting for me, and they don't cost you anything. It's not like you know, the DMS system is going to charge you because you have an extra fifty schedules on there. Right. Okay. I don't have another one on service, but I see we're coming up on vehicle sales, yeah. and and I have a good one for this. Okay. Uh, this, again, this is an well, this is another one that you would never see in the newspaper, but it's a true story. Uh, it happened with a dealership in Los Angeles. Uh, one of the one of the things that made it possible was that the dealership was in Los Angeles, but the owner was in Phoenix, Arizona. So we had absentee ownership and, and placed a lot of reliance on the general manager at the dealership. Everybody who looked at the dealer's results, financial statements, uh, said the same thing. There's something wrong with the wholesale used car business. 
because they were losing about $100,000 a month in wholesale used cars. A uh, lot of money. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the owner, of course, he saw it right away because it was his money. He says, well, you know, let's find out what's going on here. Uh, and he brought in uh, his own auditors um, to take a look at, you know, find out what's happening in the, used, in the, in the wholesale used car business here. Uh, you could look at the lot and see that the cars that they had uh, in the used car lot uh, were not the type of cars that would sell in that market, in that, in, in that neighborhood especially. So they even brought in uh, one of the major public accounting firms in the, in the country to do a, 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 a deep audit and find out what was going on. Nobody could find it out until somebody uh, on the inside uh, became a whistleblower and pointed out that every wholesale vehicle that they were buying was coming, their dealerships in Los Angeles, every wholesale vehicle was coming from Nebraska uh, from the, and from the same wholesaler in Nebraska. Uh, and it turned out that the wholesaler was, in fact, the general manager's wife. Uh, and uh, so they were buying cars at auction in Nebraska, uh, shipping them and selling them at inflated prices to the dealership uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, loss was over a million dollars. Uh, and, uh, and, and you won't read about it because the guy never did, uh, was never prosecuted, uh, and in fact wound up, uh, he got fired and wound up as a general manager at another dealership. Uh, so um, it's, uh, it's one, of those, uh, one of those things that um, you see it on paper and you know something's wrong, but it's not always easy to figure out what it is. Uh, the other case was the was the classic, uh, and and there was a lot of collusion involved. It was a dealership in a dealership group in New Jersey, uh, three dealerships on one location, uh, and uh, I found out about it because uh, I knew the uh, we had been responsible for for actually placing the a new controller, a corporate controller uh, on the dealership. Uh, and after a month, he called me up and said, "I have to quit. I can't work here anymore, and I can't tell you why. I'm not going to tell you why." It turned out that what he found out was a very simple thing, was that uh, when the wholesale came in, uh, you know, Friday or whatever day they had their wholesalers come in, uh, it was routine to leave money in the uh, glove compartments of the cars that were being, uh, being uh, bought uh, from the wholesalers. Uh, and, and it was a lot of money, it turned out. Uh, and the uh, used car manager and the uh, overall the, the the general managers of the various dealerships were all picking up a thousand to two thousand dollars a week uh, in extra compensation uh, at the expense of the owner by overpaying for used vehicles at wholesale. Uh, not necessarily losing money on them, but they just weren't making as much money as they might have. Um, so those are things that, uh, and, and how would you have stopped that, uh, especially when you have that many general managers involved? Um, and uh, it only really came to light when uh, when the dealership was sold. And, uh, and all those managers got fired uh, and, and went out and, uh, in a couple of cases, bought their own dealerships. Uh, they, they had made enough <laughs> had money. Had a nice little money. <laughs> they had had enough money to actually uh, uh, create a stake and uh, some capital for, uh, for the new business. Um, you know, the one in, uh, in California came to light only because somebody internally uh, figured out what was going on and, and let the owner know. Uh, and, uh, and that doesn't always happen. Uh, so uh, again, uh, every case they started small. Uh, when nobody stopped it, they just got bigger and bigger, uh, and the losses would get into the millions. Uh, we have a question here from Sue in the audience. Okay. Uh, again, it's more of a technical question. What's the difference between the open repair order report and a work in process schedule? 
Well, the open repair order would come from the service side of the, your DMS. Here's all the repair orders that are open. And the work in process is going to come from the general ledger side, from accounting side. So if you have a schedule, all of your work in process on a schedule, here's how much we, you know, the customer has paid us this much for time and we've paid the text this much for it. Um, we, that is something that should be reconciled every month against, here's my repair orders, I have this much I've paid for technicians on repair orders that have not closed and have not, you know, gone through the system. And hopefully there's, they're only three or four days old. Most times in the body shop they're older. But we want to make sure all those things close quickly the way they should. And so at the end of the year you're not writing off stuff that was six months old. And in one particular dealership they had stuff from 2011 that was still on there. Um, employees gone now, so not much you can do. Okay. So it's the DMS side for service versus the accounting side. We do like those things to reconcile nice okay. and neatly. And, and, and Sue, if you want to know more about work and process, we did a, a workshop like this. Uh, specifically on work in process and ways to reduce control. Uh, and if you if go to dealersedge.com uh, and search in the online store for uh, just look WIP, W-I-P, it's uh, short for work in process, and you'll see the uh, the workshop recording for that uh, if, uh, if you want to get that deep into it. Uh, it's from Brenda, uh, and I'll just read the question, uh, see what we can make of it. Uh, our drop ship Pre-sale parts tickets are reported to NOH, but it throws off the reconciliation to the general ledger at month end. Where's the correct place on the worksheet to account for those parts? As long as you can account for whatever you know is to be a difference, it makes no difference to me. Um, it's, it's much like the depreciation. As long as you know what that is, um, you can. you know you needed to add it? to accounting or subtract it from the parts department. It makes it, that, it's not, I'm not a stickler on that. It's more of a question, okay, everything's all in their places. If, if we closed today and everything was settled out, where would we end up? So I know that probably didn't answer your question. There's, I'd say some of these things you can, you know, whichever way you want to, it could come off accounting, it could come off of, you know, parts. But being consistent and you say you create your own Excel spreadsheet and, you know, you'll be plunking this stuff in each month and you're comparing it and all of a sudden things are growing or changing that shouldn't be, that would be the red flag to me. Okay, so one, one approach then would be to create your own. Yeah, I mean, I would, you, you would have to have your own Excel spreadsheet to be able to watch this right. month after. You know, I want each month compared to each month. I don't want, okay, and I get this, all, I get a sheet each month. Okay, here's, here it is, it's done. But it's not as relevant as this month compared to last month to compared to the previous month compared to the, you know, the other months as a trend on that. Okay, so Brenda could create a separate line on her oh, on yeah. her spreadsheet exactly. then and, yeah. and track it that way. Okay. Yeah, I mean you could you know it's easy enough that's you know, you'd, you'd have your own anyway, so do it, you know, wherever you would want to put it. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, because we we have a uh, Okay, so we have one, an example. We didn't really talk too much about the accounting department, but uh, a number of these uh, these thefts uh, are used, sometimes start in the accounting department, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, here's a case where an office manager stole $170,000 over two years. She had been with the company for 20 years, uh, but it was the last two years that she was with them that, that she started stealing. And she did it. Uh, all they tell us is that she did it by adjusting the value of used cars 
to set up a fake payoff. Mm -hmm. uh, now, could you maybe think about how that might have worked and explain how you know, what we might look for well, uh, in, in yeah. used cars? Um, and used cars are, are certainly interesting because they're almost like the parts department with a tiny, tiny bit more control. And what you might see is, you know, looking at the schedule and looking at the detail on there, you might see a, each vehicle got hit with an extra $100 or extra $150. So when you're adding this money to there, then you, your offset is they have a nice little credit somewhere that you can easily suck out. <laughs> you know, so it's like okay, well, I'm going to add all this, and it wouldn't be unusual. Let's say if, if somebody wanted to show extra profits, you know, they could reduce the cost of the car. But in this particular case, they're adding extra money to the car. That let's say instead of paying a sublet vendor, they just have this like payables to themselves of going through and adding a couple hundred dollars to heck every vehicle nobody might notice. You add fifty dollars to every used vehicle you had, and it could, would take no time at all to. Um, catch up to a very large sum of money. But let's say this person wanted to, this is one thing I've always kept thinking about, yeah, this would be good, um, wanted to pay off their monthly credit card bills. So they used to have a credit card at a bank, and lo and behold, at the end of the, you know, here's a stack of customer payoff checks for vehicles, and one's to, you know, Bank of America for, you know, $3,400, $3,475, you know, 12, which that amount got there from, these all these extra $100 added to each of the vehicles. So nobody might check. You might have a name on there. So I would certainly have a real good process for when you're looking at payoff checks to make sure there's actually real deals for those. So payoff checks, to me, are one of the easiest ways to get money out of a dealership when it comes to you know, paying banks and paying off your credit cards, paying against your home mortgage or something. Because, well, yeah, we know we have to pay the customer's car off. So, you know, having a good process in place where somebody's double-checking, you know, opening up the deal and making sure, just much like, like the payables person to make sure that that part was charged out, making sure that this control number on here is a legitimate deal could possibly stop that. But she could have easily just added money to, you know, fixed assets, to any schedule, to anything, and no, if, if, you don't, if nobody's paying attention. Okay, uh, that looks like the uh, the end of our questions, and um, so I, one, a couple of the notes I made. One was uh, had to do with spot checking, letting people know that you're watching, and uh, and also don't try to do it yourself. That uh, if you're the controller or office manager, don't try to do all these these things on your own. Uh, enlist the help of other people in the accounting department uh, and perhaps other other managers in the dealership. Uh, alert them what to look for. Uh, and let people know that you're looking. Uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, just because you're looking doesn't mean you suspect anything. It's just routine. Uh, at one time I worked in a bank uh, bank branch, and uh, and we had to audit. Each teller had to be audited once a month. Uh, that was just a rule. It's not, not we think you're stealing, but we want to make sure. Um, and uh, so once a month each teller would have to be stopped. Uh, their work would be stopped, and uh, somebody would audit and count down. Uh, their cash and settle their settle their uh, their drawer uh, each month, and and consequently uh, shortages, um, teller shortages were were not a real problem. There were, <clears throat> you know, there were mistakes that were made, but actual actual theft was uh, was almost non-existent uh, because of that. Um, so that you know, again, the, the lesson today is that all these big thefts that we we talk about start with small thefts, 
Uh, and if you can stop them early, uh, you can save your dealership a lot of money and a lot of heartache, uh, and probably save your employees a lot of heartache as well uh, by uh, just by paying attention uh, and doing some spot checks uh, and looking into some of these ideas that Brooke has given us today. Um, I'd like to remind you all that we did record today's workshop, and the contact person from each registered site will receive information tomorrow morning about how to access the recording. Um, feel free to share the recording with other people in your dealership or dealership group. If you have more questions for Brooke, uh, she'd be happy to answer them and like to hear from you. Uh, so Brooke's email address and phone number are there in front of you on the screen. Uh, uh, give her a call, uh, chat with her about uh, maybe things that you're seeing in your own dealership that you might need a little advice on, uh, and uh, check out the profit, uh, the, the uh, Blueprint for Profits website uh, that you see there in front of you as well. I'd like to thank all of you for taking time to join us today. Uh, we had another large crowd from around the country and Canada, uh, and we appreciate you taking time out of your dealership day and spending it with us. And I'd like to offer special thanks to Brooke Samples of Profit Blueprints, uh, for taking the time uh, to put today's workshop together and for sharing her expertise and experience with us. Brooke, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Mike. And again, I love it when people want to get involved with this because the better their dealerships are, the better the industry is, and it's, mm -hmm. it's much nicer for everybody then. So. Yes, it is, it is disheartening to see these uh, news reports uh, every week um, of things that are going on that, that it shouldn't be. And, and they're not new. Uh, they're <laughs> things that people are aware of, and, uh, and, and you just wonder how they can go on for so long uh, without being detected. But uh, it is what it is, it is. and, uh, and we just, uh, we'd just like to see it cut well, down. So well, I'll be happy uh, to speak with anybody who has any questions. And, and you know, We went through this accounting stuff rather quickly, because I don't know the you know, background there, mm -hmm. but I really see that as a real tool going forward to save your time, yourself time and be able to catch things before it's, you know, it's well, not two years down the road, but it's now. Okay. All right. So thank you all again, and uh, we'll be signing off now and hope you can join us again next week.